2: John Alessi looked destined for F1 superstardom at the start of the 1990s as he kicked off the decade by leading its first race, then memorably mugged Ayrton Senna after the McLaren driver had caught and passed him for the lead on the streets of Phoenix. There were more heroics on track during that year and another street circuit podium in Monaco, but ultimately, Oleessi's first season F1 became more memorable for what was going on behind the scenes and his famous contract saga that eventually resulted in him landing a dream move to Ferrari, despite having previously signed a contract with Williams. In this episode of Bring Back V10s, we'll unpick everything that was going on during a summer where Alacy signed contracts with three teams for 1991 and also revisit what made him and the influential Tyrrell 019 such a potent package on their day. And joining me, Glenn Freeman, to do just that are Sam Smith and Andrew Vanderberg. Andy, welcome along. Straight into it, when you think of Jean Alacy's 1990, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
3: Yeah hi Glenn, thanks for having me back on. Um it's an honour to be here talking about Alacy in particular this season. So so many memories. I mean, obviously everyone will recall that pass in Phoenix and you know what a what an introduction to the year that that was. But I think the bit that always comes back to mind is the Italian Grand Prix that year, where he beats Mantle off the line, then does Brost into the second chicane. Then Warwick has his massive shunt and the start all happens again. And he does exactly the same thing. And we watched the commentary and like Murray Walker can't believe that he's there. Just blasting past Prost to retake the position in almost completely identical fashion to the way he did it, first of all. So, yeah, I just an amazing memory of, of that. And a time when, you know, I'd been a, a PK fan since I started watching F1. But after those two years at Lotus, I was sort of having to come to the realisation that maybe he was past it and I was looking for a, a new hero and at that time I thought Lacey was gonna be my man.
2: I'm glad uh, I'm glad we've got that Monza mention in because uh, to keep the script for this episode tight enough so we're not here for two hours, I had to skip Monza. So we we've got a mention in right at the top. Uh, Sam, how about you?
4: Personally, I think there's too much in all this to just distill it down for for one Memory. I mean, it's quite personal as well, because in a sense, 1990 was the season for me where racing turned from a a geeky hobby, which we all were at one stage, weren't we, into something more professional. I was working with a former 3000 team, uh, washing wheels and cleaning cars. So yeah, 1990 is like a cultural reference point in some ways for me, because, you know, when you're 15 the world kind of unfolds before you doesn't it and with the you know the music scene living in, living in manchester as i was then uh, italian 90 world cup it's it's so evocative um and just one of those years that in your youth you you remember so fondly a lacey was very much a part of that for me um like a visceral sort of manifestation of growing up i guess um sorry if that's a bit obtuse but really that that's the first thing that comes into my mind it's just that wonderful scary technical year where Alacy was just this acrobat working with a car that should have been nowhere near the front and occasionally was um the underdog's underdog i think is a nice way to encapsulate what i feel about Alacy that season
2: yeah that's brilliant you know the, the the open the beauty of the opening question is that you can take it wherever you want and uh, the more variety the better obviously now we put the opening question out to our audience as well on twitter once again Over uh, a hundred replies to this. Thank you to everyone who gets involved. It's brilliant seeing the the variety we get. Obviously, with Lacey 1990, there's some similar ones that kept coming up. We'll do those at the end, Uh, but let's crack into it. Greg Ankers said, The pleasure of seeing Tyrrell competing at the front. Thought that was quite a nice one. Uh, There was a theme here that we'll pick up on. Matt Knopp said, The sheer potential he had, but the missed opportunities that would define his career... Gavin O'Leary said, fast and erratic, arguably the best driver in the first quarter of the season, then mistake after mistake. Uh, Ethan Davis said, a clearly talented young driver, either looking like prime Jim Clark or shocking the average, no in-between. Paul Lucas said, the points he threw away matched those he gained. And Stephen Gates summed this whole section up uh, as a pointer to his whole mercurial career. Joost uh, J.O. and Paul Fernley gave a shout out to Jean-Claude Migiot for the high-nosed Tyrrell that became so pioneering. Sean McMorrow uh, is with Andy and chose Nailing Prost Ferrari twice at Monza. Our Jeff says the Williams Ferrari contract fiasco. We'll spend plenty of time getting into that. But we'll finish with the, the most popular choices. So many of you... Of course, chose Alacy's race leading performance and battle with Ayrton Senna in Phoenix, or as a couple of you said, Detroit, but that's okay, it was more than 30 years ago. Um, among those of you who chose Phoenix were Gavin Richardson, Robert Bonser, Clay Halford, Rob Young, Paul William Gibson, Jim Cooper, and Cameron Evans. And there were some shouts for Monaco, where Alacy split the McLarens to finish second again. So thanks to Ben Milden, Sim Racing Sam. Robert Wilmot and Hesketh Motorcycles. Of course, we love hearing from those of you who send us questions for the end of the series as well. So make sure you ask us anything you'd like about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005 by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email bringbackv10s at the Check out shop.the-race.com if you'd like to get your hands on some of our Bring Back V10s merchandise. And thank you to everyone who sends pictures of the clothing or other items we have over there that, that carries our branding. And thanks, thanks for buying them over the Christmas period and into January as well. And of course, if you'd like to get early access to new episodes of the show and listen ad-free, then check out the Race Members Club to take a look at the other benefits you can get from the race by joining up. And then to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. Now in F1 circles, the 1990s began with much being expected of a Lacey, who had just eight starts to his name by this point, but he'd made an impact. During his part season in 1989, and in Autosport magazine, Nigel Roebuck described Alacy as a young driver who should be central to the new decade. Alacy was being talked up by his bosses as well. Ken Tyrrell said he had a certain arrogance about him, but in a good way because he has confidence in himself. And Ken praised Alacy's ability to be on the pace straight away when he leaves the pits, rather than needing four or five laps to settle in. Tyrrell Technical Chief Harvey Postlethwaite said Alacy had the killer instinct and was aggressive without being silly. He also said Alacy had no obvious failings and was already showing unbelievable consistency in races. In a later interview during pre-season, Ken Tyrrell went even further, saying the team's fortunes would depend a lot on how Alacy dealt with being so inexperienced. But Ken added, if he continues at the rate that he has already improved, then I can see him at the end of the year being probably second only to Senna. Now, Sam, given that this was pre-Phoenix, which was obviously the race that catapulted the, the hype around Alacy to, to new levels, was he worthy of such high praise after just a handful of F1 races with Tyrrell in 1989?
4: Well, to bastardise a great public enemy track of the era, do believe the hype. And I think that's what I was feeling when Alacy <laughs> was, uh, was even from early early on in his career pre-F1 I mean when you look at his early career 1988 apart when he had a very average first season in Formula 3000 with Orica he'd would he been pretty mercurial he'd started in Renault 5s he was Formula 3 champion by uh, by 87 and then in 89 when he went to Eddie Jordan he'd won the Formula 3000 championship and had that amazing start at Paul Ricard you know and it, it had all been done with pretty strong fields um, he'd had some Real, um, some real testing parts of his career already, and I think it's well known that Eddie Jordan kind of smoothed him out a little bit. That that, that Ricard debut and his complete destruction of Jonathan Palmer as well, which shouldn't be forgotten, in 89, I think just signalled a special talent. I think if anyone can... Effectively end a pretty strong driver as Jonathan Palmer was by half a season, then um, you know you've got something special. I think I think in Phoenix in '90 there was still a lot of unknowns about him, particularly his temperament. I vividly vividly recall actually being at Brands Hatch in '89, August '89, and he was really having a ding dong with his teammate Martin Donnelly at the time, and they were vying for the lead early in that race, and there was a parked car by the pit wall as they used to be in those days. I mean, you know, unbelievable when there's a, you know, this sweeping right-hander and there's a parked car on the track. They just left it there, no yellow flags, nothing. And Lacey defending the lead edged Donnelly's Camel Reynard towards it, and it was absolutely brutal. I mean, he missed it by a, a very fine margin. It would have been an absolute plane crash if Donnelly had have hit uh, that car. But it really gave you an idea of how ruthless this kid was, as well as... Um, as, as rapid. But in battle he was utterly ruthless. Um I think Alacy had already built up this character and this buzz about him. And it was just that Formula One in its kind of usual blinkered way hadn't noticed him. But they sure as hell did by by Paul Rickard and then once the paddock sees what he can do, the the momentum builds, doesn't it? And and, and if you back that up with results as he did in that part of season in eighty nine, come Phoenix, um there was there was a big buzz about him.
2: With Alacy's help, Tyrrell had finished fifth in the Constructors' Championship in 1989, its best finish since 1979, and the team was looking upwards. It finished 23 points behind Benetton in the standings, but Tyrrell's target was to overhaul Benetton and break into the top four. Ken Tyrrell said, we've got to be fourth in the Constructors' Championship this year. We know we can't beat McLaren, except when they make a mistake. And the same applies to Ferrari and perhaps to a lesser degree to Williams. But we think we can beat Benetton. We've got high hopes. Addy, was Tyrrell overreaching here, thinking it could get on terms of at least one of what, at this time, was becoming the big four in F1?
3: I think it was a a reasonable thing for them to aspire to. If you'd looked at the pace when certainly when a was in the car in 89 as Sam said he pretty much put Palmer's career to bed and when he was off trying to win the Formula 3000 championship Herbert jumped in the car and neither of them were anywhere near as competitive as he was but when when he was in the car he was pretty much a match for the Benetons he'd like qualified them both in Spain uh, when they put Piero in instead of Herbert he was pretty much on on Piero's pace so I think that there was a, every reason to think that if he was in the car for the full season maybe he could do that of course then it was only the top 6 that scored points so the, you know there were there were slim pickings to be had you just and if you had a a guy who could perform miracles on his day that was often all you really needed you know if you if you bagged a, a solid third or fourth place that that could be worth quite a lot over the course of the year also you know in the in the DFR they had a an engine that was should have been uh, solidly reliable. Obviously, the whole reason we do this podcast is because of the plethora of different engines and everything that were coming in then, and uh, and the sort of randomness that that created. The Benetton had the HB, not such a, a proven package, and and also I think. You look at the the way the form fluctuated then, you know, Lotus had been a championship contender only a few years ago. Then they were in the doldrums. Teams like Arrows and Ligier and Brabham to a lesser extent would come and go. So you could never, it, was, it wasn't it was quite as static and set as the form is now. Um, plus, looking at the driver lineups that Benetton and, and even Williams had, you know, with Patrese and Bootson and obviously I mentioned that I was a PK fan, but it was hard to know how good he was going to be coming into that alongside Nanini for 90. I think they there were reasons for them to think that they could possibly do it, you know, and, and if a bagged enough of those big results uh, to finish fourth in the championship.
2: Just days before the start of the season, Tyrrell made a shock switch from Goodyear to Pirelli tyres. This seemed bizarre because it Tyrrell had spent All of pre-season testing on Goodyear's and he wouldn't get to run the Pirellis until first practice at the opening race in Phoenix. Harvey Postlethwaite explained at the time that the decision was motivated by the fact that Tyrrell would be able to work closely with Pirelli to combine the development of the tyres and the chassis and Tyrrell would benefit from the latest specification tyres. Ahead of this episode, uh, Sam spoke to Alacy's engineer, Nigel Beresford, about various things that went on at Tyrrell during that year. And this is what Nigel told Sam about switching tyre supplier on the eve of the season.
1: Harvey and Jean-Claude pressured Ken into changing to using Pirelli tyres. Um, and for, for, for very strong technical reasons, a um, big part of the performance of our cars at that time was the fact that uh, jean claude had developed this computer program which was called uh, aeromap and i think we were probably the first or at least very much one of the first teams to use this um and it basically allowed him to predict the aerodynamic balance of the car at different speeds um because uh, when and that's very important because when you was setting up a car in those days you didn't have we had no telemetry or data recording devices on that car whatsoever and so um it was very uh everything was done seat of the pants and intuition and understanding what the driver was telling you so we uh john claude and harvey um pushed ken uh again perhaps against Ken's better judgment but in the end he put faith in them and I think the faith was rewarded to change to Pirelli because Pirelli would give us the data we were not a top five team and Goodyear only gave top five teams the tyre data the stiffness of the tyre you needed to be able to predict the car's behaviour with Um, we could
2: only get that from Pirelli Sam, thanks for getting that stuff from Nigel. We'll hear from him again later in the episode. Pirelli had only been back in F1 a year at this point. How much of a gamble was this for Tyrrell to make the last minute change away from what was the dominant Goodyear tyres?
4: In one sense, it was a big gamble, but actually, Tyrrell at that stage was in a position where it didn't have a massive amount to lose. It had little expectation on its shoulders other than those of Ken Tyrrell himself, who always talked (laughs) up their chances. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you know, he was the consummate optimist, wasn't he? And we we loved him for it, but... It, it, it had no ties to manufacturers at that time few commercial responsibilities and it was the archetypal racer team in f1 at that time even more so than williams in in my opinion it was a it was a pure racing entity so why not roll the dice with pirelli it had nothing to lose we'd, we'd seen at some tracks in 89 notably monaco where stefano Modena took at Brabham to a podium in Hungary Alex Caffey qualified third didn't get a result but showed that there was certainly one lap pace in them um, and that I think that provided some confidence to teams that actually Pirelli was a, a worthwhile gamble um, and it could have an advantage on, on some low grip tracks and, and street circuits as we saw in Phoenix. So why not give them a go? Yes, it was a late call. Ideally, they would have done a couple of weeks of testing, but I don't think that was ever going to be a realistic prospect for Tyrrell at that stage. I think Postlethwaite was uh, Harvey Postlethwaite was instrumental in this decision, and, and remember that his early years in his own career had been spent at Hesketh and and also Wolf, which were again underdog teams, not dissimilar to Tyrrell. So he was in a good position to help rationalise these gambles and get the most out of them. and And sure enough, not consistently, but it did pay off for them uh, certainly at, at Phoenix and Monaco that year.
2: Alacie didn't take much time to get up to speed with the Pirelli's as he was fastest in his first session using them on the Friday morning in Phoenix, which is remarkable. He went on to qualify fourth, but that was made him only the third fastest Pirelli driver. As behind pole sitter Gerhard Berger's Goodyear Shod McLaren, we had Pierluigi Martini's Minardi second and Andrea di De Cesaris's Delara third on Pirelli's. I mean, somewhere Ed Straw is just basking in this grid lineup. Alacy spoke about this race for a special F1 DVD that was released a few years ago called Greatest Races. And all of the content from that DVD has since made its way onto the F1 TV platform. He said uh, that he told Ken Tyrrell beforehand that he wanted to lead the race at the start. And Ken told him, I don't care what you do at the start, finish the race. And Harvey Postlethwaite suggested it would be better to try leading the last lap. Alacy went on to explain that he made a perfect start and as he looked set to slot in behind Berger in second place at the first corner, he thought that was enough, but when he hit the brakes, he felt the door open in front of him, so he decided to go for it and pass Berger as well. So Andy, Alessi goes from fourth to first in a matter of seconds here at Phoenix, with a, I think, a slightly cautious Senna behind him sniffing around. Uh, Did Alacy ace this start, or was Berger, the pole man, way too tentative into turn one?
3: I really enjoyed having to go back and rewatch watch the uh, opening laps of this. And speaking of Ed, he must have been incredibly excited when you see a, a Eurobrun coming round, having actually qualified for once. Um,
2: well, I, I, I tweeted about this. I tweeted a screen grab of, of uh, Moreno's Eurobrun in front of Mansell's Ferrari because he qualified in front of him. And uh, I think Ed's response was that I hadn't shouted out that there was a Larousse in front and behind them <laughs> on the grid. So that's what he.
3: Oh, I mean, that shows how, how good those Prelli qualifiers were, right? EuroBrun out qualifying a Ferrari. Um, anyway, uh, so Alas, does make a very good start, but Berger actually makes a pretty decent one. It's just he tries to um, cover the entire width of that very wide track all in one go. Literally, he goes from. Uh, Left to right, covering, trying to cover off everybody all at the same time, before then sort of taking a very conventional line into the first corner. And he does just leave the door wide open. I, I can imagine Alacy could scarcely believe his luck. I mean, it's not even just a jar. It is fully wide open. I mean, if Senna had wanted to, he could have dived down in there as well. There was enough room for, for him to go for it. I mean, probably not wanting to uh, crash into his teammate in the first corner. But uh, it was... A weird one. I mean, I, I sort of understand it because they would have known from before that the Pirellis maybe didn't have the longevity and they could play a, a long game. But this is Berger's first race at McLaren. He's out-qualified centre, which is something he would hardly ever do again and, and hardly had ever been done before. You think he'd really want to stamp his authority on it, get in there, get that gap, get the guy in between this a bit of a random unknown and and really make something of it. So I was, especially as wasn't a particularly timid driver. It's not one of the things you would say when you recall in his career. Oh, yeah, but he was really timid. Um, but here he does just roll over. It's remarkable. But it, it did mean that we would have this amazing uh, fight and this effectively unknown kid leading the race, which is what anyone ever really wants in a Grand Prix, isn't it?
2: Well, from there, Alacy charged off into the lead, building a gap of around nine seconds in the early laps. Then, once Berger crashed out of second place, so brilliant start to his McLaren career, Senna was released and started to eat into the Tyrrell's advantage. Speaking about his time out in the lead for the F1 Greatest Races segment, Alacy said, I was laughing. I was so happy. I had a V8 engine and the others had a V10 or a V12, so they had more fuel than me and my car was lighter. So during the first part of the race, that was my time, I had to do the maximum. Senna said he was pacing himself in the early laps, wanting to wait for his fuel load to go down, and to see how Alacy's Pirelli tyres held up. But he said Alacy was driving very well and described him as aggressive but precise, and Senna knew it was going to be difficult to find a way past. At the time, Alacy said, I was driving every lap like a qualifying lap, but obviously that couldn't continue. I was sure I wouldn't win the race, I'm a realist, but I decided to hold on to the lead for as long as possible. That's why I pushed so hard from the beginning I was at a hundred percent as fun as that is Sam might Alacy have had a genuine shot at winning this race if he tried to pace himself a bit more or was he right that Senna was always going to get him so why not charge up the road and get away from everyone else
4: I tend to think the latter is more likely and, and sort of that Jean actually had it covered in terms of what he said there um don't forget the till had no testing on the Pirelli's at whatever whatsoever you know they had no real data it was a complete unknown for them and, and so too for the driver on how to try and get the best out of them um so trying to gauge on how they would behave over 78 or 80 laps or whatever it was um, around a street track like Phoenix um, was always going to be marginal, I think. I also don't think you can expect a guy with seven Grand Prix under his belt to to think strategically in a very focused way as others such as Senna um, and more experienced drivers would have been doing during a long Grand Prix like that. Um, He'd just taken a Grand Prix lead for the first time in his career and as he says he could barely believe what he had beneath him so I yeah, it was it was a temporary rocket ship that he had and, and knowing that there was going to be this this drop-off and that center's fuel levels were, were going to come down it, it was always going to be the case that he was going to get caught it's it's rare that a driver can pull off leading a Grand Prix in such fashion in at such an early stage of their career I mean I can't remember that many in that era that, that, that were able to do that. I mean, Jano Trulli did it, didn't he, in Austria a few years later, but I don't recall, you know, even in Senna's 84 season, there was no way he was going to, um, you know, Monaco apart, which had some extraordinary circumstances. There was nowhere, no way he was going to lead a Grand Prix. So it was it was remarkable, but certainly on race pace that day, Senna, Senna had a clear advantage and, and, it, and it told eventually over the course of the, the whole Grand Prix.
2: Senna said he called to Lacy once they got into the backmarkers and Lacy said slowly slowly I saw him coming and I said okay let's wait for the fight I had no chance except making a bit of fun of it and that's what I did on lap 34 Senna passed Lacy down the inside at the first corner but as he took the normal racing line into the next bend Lacy shot straight into the gap Senna had left on the inside to retake the lead Senna said he didn't expect Lacey to come back at him where the track was so dirty, but he said he took a chance and he did well. Senna said he had to open the door, otherwise they would have crashed, but he called the battle exciting. A lap later, Senna did it again, and this time he well and truly blocked the inside line into, into turn two. It was definitely established world champion telling a new hotshot, you are not doing that again. Uh, but Alessi then kept trying to find a way by in the next few corners, and Senna just about held him off. Senna cruised away to victory after that, and he praised Alacy afterwards, saying he drove a fantastic race. Alacy said he was happy to be second, and it was an honour to fight with Senna, who had been his hero before Alacy made it to F1. Andy, obviously, Alacy goes on to, to finish on the podium, which is incredible. But do, do you think this battle with Senna is a bigger part of Alacy's Phoenix legend than the fact that he led the first 34 laps of this race?
3: Yeah, I think absolutely it is. But I think it's purely because of who he was fighting with. You know, had it been anyone else, with greatest respect, had it been Berger or Bootsen or Nanini or whatever, I don't think that that would have been the story. The story then would have been that Lacey had led all this time and then they'd gone on to win. But the fact it was Ayrton Senna, you know, established by that point as the fastest driver in F1, but also probably... The hardest to pass, the most uncompromising, the wiliest in battle, I mean a number of times him and Mansell have been pirouetting off around the track over the last three or four seasons was unbelievable for him to send out the inside so beautifully and confidently was just absolutely awe-inspired I remember watching it at a time I was probably jumping up and down cheering it was that good and like you say when he tried it again and then just didn't leave it you know he's, he's having a little dive here he's having a little look there he's like he's not letting it go and I really wish he'd managed to get him again because that you know we we knew the the pace that Senna had he was going to disappear up the road but we could have had a couple more laps of that it would have been absolutely amazing um but it is it's one of those things that's just seared in your memory. You know, you can close your, you can picture where the cars are. You can picture how he does it. It's so absolutely iconic.
4: I think with the pictures, have to go the words, and I remember James Hunt's fa- fabulous commentary on that whole battle when he said there the two things that stood out. He said, um, when Alacy did the move, he said, uh, that's a bit cheeky, isn't it? And then he comes back and he goes sloppy center, sloppy center. I mean, just perfect James Hunt. And I, I think it'd be remiss for us not to, uh, not to mention that.
2: Yeah. We always love shouting out the commentators here. Such a, such a big part of, of watching F1, of course, as we all were back then sat at home on TV. Uh, next time out at Brazil, Lacey narrowly missed out on a point. Uh, to Nelson Piquet on the final lap, much to uh, Andy's relief. But in the seven-week gap between rounds two and three, imagine that today. I don't. I don't. If you had a seven-week gap, could you get twenty-four races in still? Uh, anyway, Tyrell's maybe, de- maybe if you did it in January to February. Possibly. Yeah, <laughs> Tyrell's definitive nineteen-ninety car, the uh, 019, finally broke cover. And actually, one of our Twitter responses uh, described the uh, uh, described it as a Mandela effect that. You imagine a lacy battling centre in the high nose Tyrrell, but of course he wasn't, he was in the old car. Um, So, yeah, as I've mentioned there, this is the famous raised nose design. Postlethwaite said the high nose improves underbody aerodynamics and allows more air to flow under the part of the car where it will produce more suction. Tyrell said at the time that part of the thinking was that it wanted to try something new in an attempt to get ahead. And Postlethwaite added, If you're in a situation like we are, where you don't have a powerful engine, to find an advantage one must exploit the chassis to the full and seek out more radical solutions. If we had Ayrton Senna and Honda Power, we'd probably do something different. Well, I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't have Senna and Honda and we got this car. During testing, of which there was plenty during that seven-week gap, Alacy was right on the pace with the new car, which he said felt more responsive and had better grip, traction and top speed than the old car. Before we discuss it, let's hear from Nigel Beresford again as he explained to Sam the other key feature that Tyrrell was using at the time that was helping give it so much performance.
1: It was a fantastic car. 018, 019 were kind of... Half brothers, really, because the 019 was essentially an 018 with the with the raised front end and and some tidied up details around the back end. But it was oh, they were both monoshock front uh, suspension, which was an innovation brought about like all innovations through necessity. Which was the necessity being that the whole problem when you were trying to set up a car in those days when you didn't have things like active differentials or whatever was you had to compromise you had to compromise between either having a car which was uh which was good in slow to- slow corners or good at high speed but you kind of couldn't have both because the the stiff springing and the and the attitude the the rake that you wanted for high speed stability was unsuitable for agility and and um, the ability to, to attack chicanes and that kind of thing at low speed. What the monoshock did for us was it separated the vertical stiffness of the car and the roll stiffness of the car at the front, which meant you could have a nice, soft roll stiffness so the drivers could attack chicanes aggressively and you could then uh, use the, the stiffer central front spring to give high vertical stiffness, which you needed in order to keep the the front of the car um, uh, at the correct type of ride height of what you needed to make it um, more comfortable for the driver at high speed. Uh, and then at the back, you could, you'd use nice um, soft springs which would heave down onto bump rubbers so the car would um, change rake. The whole point was that basically you changed rake of the car depending on whether it was at high or low speed. The Aeromap program allowed us to predict that. The use of Pirelli tyres allowed the Aeromap program to be accurate because we knew how stiff the tyres were, and so it was all it was all part of a package which worked tremendously well. And so, like I say, you had you had this weapon. And then you just needed a guy like Sean Lacey to get in it and use it and get the most out of it, which he, which he most certainly did.
2: Sam, great insight again there from Nigel. But let's focus on the visual bit that you don't have to be an engineer to, to understand at it's, its most basic level anyway. When you saw that nose, did you realise immediately that Tyrrell had set a trend that was going to define F1 car design for, for decades to come?
4: Although f1 cars of that era were so different visually from one another, I still remember being completely wowed by this weird walrusy uh front to the to the zero nineteen. It looked absolutely mega, just so purposeful like it was sort of grimacing and menacing all at the same time. I absolutely loved it. I'm not sure anyone looked at it and thought that. Migjoe and Postlethwaite had begun a new era of design philosophy, though I, you know I'm sure that the likes of Adrian Newey and, and John Barnard analysed it um, forensically. But certainly outside of you know as mere fans, it, it, I don't recall it being the kind of um, de rigueur thing that you had to have. Um, but obviously you know we were wrong that, that there was this innovation. That was gonna gonna come to the look of the cars as well as the the practicality of them. I mean, Nigel mentioned the monoshock front suspension there, which sat atop the tub, and it also had some uh, clever springs as well that worked in harmony with it, and um, were on either end of the torsion bar, which really led the way at that time in terms of some innovative um, work from the designers. It was it was all in a package of clever engineering, and they had such strength in depth of engineering talent at Tyrrell, as, well as, um, as well as Nigel himself. There was obviously a design element of mijo uh, Postlethwaite. Uh, Mark Hanford, was uh, a very young Mark Hanford, was part of Tyrrell at that, that era. So they had a really strong strength in depth uh, design office there, a lot of ingenuity, and I think it was perhaps the last of its kind in some respect that, that, that you could have a team such as Tyrrell that was threatening to to lead and win races on such a meager budget in f1 i mean possibly that was the last time in f1 that that, that, that an entity of that nature could could get those results and, and threaten the bigger teams who were on so much more money um had so much more spend than spending power than that team but as for setting a trend, I can't claim to think it would become at that time such a copied trait for the early to mid 90s period. But it, but it clearly did, and I think once people saw the advantage of the combination of monoshock and 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 this this anhedral front and, and how it worked in giving the car more downforce, then it was a, it was a no-brainer for the um, for the technicians to to get creative and uh, and effectively change the look of early 90s to mid-90s Grand Prix cars?
3: Has the word anhedral ever been used in any other context? <laughs> it's
4: a good question.
2: I was almost going to shout it out when, when when Sam was describing the look of it. I was like, we've got to say anhedral. Someone has to say it.
4: It was a Murray Walker thing, wasn't it? I remember Murray Walker using anhedral as much as he used, you know, a lot of his other phrases. He Superbative.
0: So
4: <laughs> yeah. I think he could, he could cut the anhedral atmosphere with a cricket stump.
0: Also around this time, Alacy
2: was interviewed by Joe Sayward for Autosport and he was asked about his future beyond 1990. He said Tyrrell was a fantastic team to be with to learn F1 and talked up the fact it would have Honda engines for 1991. But he also said he was only contracted for 1990 and that the option in his contract for 91 had not been signed yet. And this was contrary to something Ken Tyrrell had said in February when he claimed he had already taken that option up. Lacey said it was too early to talk about the possibility of driving for Ferrari, McLaren or Williams. But he added, if I want to be successful, I have to be with the best team at the right time. Those words uh, will come back to bite him in 1991 and 92. Uh, Andy, as we'll come to later, we know that by this point, Alacy had actually already signed something with Williams. Do you think this interview was his way of making a first sign publicly and perhaps to Tyrrell that his ambitions were already moving beyond scrapping it out, driving for a plucky underdog?
3: Well, I think this is a demonstration of a ambitious young driver that's reveling in being in the form of his career. He's the reigning Formula 3000 champion. He's effectively been the star of probably a quarter of the F1 races he's done to that date. Um, And you don't. He wouldn't have to have been a genius to realise at that time his stock was absolutely soaring. And of course, he was right. You know, if he was going to be world champion, um, he needed to get into a race winning car as soon as possible. Um, We've seen, you know, that you can only be the flavour of the month for so long. And if you don't capitalise on that and, you know, we'll get into what ultimately happened to a lacey further down the line and you missed the boat, it doesn't always come around again and you and you can spend your career being, oh, one of those guys that would have been if only he'd been in the right car at the right time. So um I think it would show exactly what I would want to see from a young driver in the position that he was in then. You know, if he was if he wasn't going to bag a big move off the back of what he was doing at Tyrrell at this time, I don't think he was ever going to.
2: Also in that interview, Alacy had highlighted Monaco, Hungary and Jerez as the races where he thought Tyrrell could spring more surprises, so all the twisty tracks. And of Monaco, he said he thought he could do better there than he did in Phoenix, and he said if he couldn't win, perhaps this time he could lead 50 laps. As it happened, he didn't lead any because Senna took care of that from lights to flag, but Alacy mugged Prost for second on the opening lap at Mirabeau, and then tried to do the same on a restart after a red flag, which is actually caused by Berger ploughing into Prost after Alessi had passed him. Prost covered it a second time, unlike uh, Monza later in the year. But Alessi was released into second place when the Ferrari broke down, and he held off Berger to the end to claim another street circuit second place. But how much of those results were Alessi's brilliance, and how much was down to Pirelli's tyres? Even Frank Williams, who... As we've mentioned, had already signed a contract with Lacy at this point, said publicly in the summer of 1990. You have to ask yourself how much of those amazing performances is chassis or tyres? Alacy's races, Monaco and Phoenix apart, haven't been that competitive. Sam, when Alacy bagged this result on his first F1 start at Monaco, was this further proof that Alacy was the real deal? Or do we have to take into account the Pirelli factor? And did that actually make it hard to judge exactly how well Alacy was doing?
4: I tend to go with the fact that Alacy was flattering the Pirellis, honestly. And that's not just because I was a fan of Alacy. I think if you look at the hard evidence, at Monaco, he was 1.4 seconds quicker than the next Pirelli runner, which was Pierluigi Martini in the Minardi. But importantly, he was ahead of a McLaren, a Ferrari, both Williams and both Benettons at Monaco. I mean, that that's impressive for his first ever Grand Prix on the on the streets of the Principality, and and actually for it's just the second race of, of this new car as well. So there was still a lot of development that they hoped to get from that that whole package. And but you know, Alace's talent was so it burned so bright that I think that one point four seconds I mentioned and. Pierluigi Martini was the guy who was ahead of him on the grid in Phoenix, and, and Martini was a, a bloody good driver in, in from sort of 89 to 91, he was at his peak, and and probably was a very underrated um, competitor, and to have that margin on a track like Monaco, where talent rules, I think actually there is a strong case to say that Alessi was actually flattering the, the Pirelli rubber, rather than what what Frank Williams said so in my mind looking at it now three what three decades on and more it seems even more fantastic that with a customer Cosworth Pirelli tyres in a team on whatever percentage you want to guess at in terms of um, difference to the big competitors as a deficit Alacy was able to finish that Grand Prix less than two seconds behind Ayrton and Senna who, who admittedly dominated the race and lost a load of time um I think with Derek Warwick when he spun at the chicane and he he basically cruised to the flag. But Alacy was the only driver who took it to center to on that day. Uh, again, he'd done it twice in what now, four aces. Um you know, I think I think it's forgotten just how sensational that was. And I don't put much credence to what Frank Williams said and, and maybe he was maybe Frank was um thinking of the long game there. Maybe Frank was thinking what might be to come with the whole mess of uh, what he signed with the Lacey and, and and how that played out, which obviously we're going to come on to.
3: So I think it's, it's a strange way of analysing it, really, because surely the races where he's not a factor, you would say, well, that's because of the Pirellis, rather than the places where, you, the street tracks, right, famously, where you can transcend the limitations of the package that you have, rather than, you know, high... Um, aero circuits where it's you know, almost impossible to go beyond what the, the package of uh, car and tyres have, have given you. So e- either it's deliberately naive to put people off the scent of what he's trying to do or, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very strange way of looking at it, I think.
2: Yeah, I think you might be onto something with putting people off the scent. Uh, as we mentioned, Lacy had signed some a deal with Williams in the off-season. Frank would later declare... This was signed on the 2nd of February. Alessi said in an interview with Motorsport Magazine in 2017 that the deal covered 1991, 92 and 93, and uh, the contract said it would be announced at the French Grand Prix in July, and if it wasn't, the agreement would switch from being a full-blown contract to just an option on Williams' side until September. It's a little surprise, I think, hearing that, to, to, to hear that Alessi's lawyer told him to get Williams to take that clause out, but Frank said he couldn't because Renault paid the driver's salaries and Frank hadn't told Renault about signing Alacy yet, but he said February to July would give him enough time to convince them to go for it, so it would all be fine. Alacy's lawyer then asked John if he trusted Frank and Alacy said, I have to, he's Frank Williams. So in the end, he signed the deal with all of those terms attached. Andy, before we get into what happened next, and trying to look at this without the benefit of hindsight, which is always difficult, was a silly to sign up to those terms with Williams? Well,
3: they're bizarre terms, aren't they? Um, and yeah, I can understand why you would pose the question. But I, I can see from a point of view, you know, it's Williams. They're one of the grandy teams in the championship. And... You know, you've got this opportunity, as I said earlier, flavour of the month, you're going you're to gonna want to grab that. But I'm sure there must have been someone else around him. He was good friends with Eddie Jordan. He'd obviously won 3,000. There must have been someone else that could have advised him that they weren't the right terms for him to sign at the time. Um, I, You know, it's very easy to be dazzled by the bright lights and, and the opportunity and you know, why wouldn't he want to? get his uh, bum in that car but i i think really that there was there's some big warning signs flashing there and there ought to have been someone else around him other than his lawyer to you know put their arm around him and say look this isn't how it ought to be being done
2: so we get to the french grand prix weekend and Alacy bumped into ferrari boss uh cesare fiorio Fiorio had inquired about Alacy's future earlier in the season and was slightly put out when Alacy said he'd already signed with someone else, but he wouldn't say who. By the French GP in the summer, Fiorio knew it was Williams, but he warned Alacy that Frank wasn't going to be making the announcement he'd promised because Williams were trying to sign Ayrton Senna. Frank denied this when Alacy went to him, but sure enough, there was no announcement in France. Alacy then went to Nelson Piquet, who by now was acting as a, a kind of mentor for him in the F1 paddock. And I think this is what Andy's talking about. If Piquet had been there in February, this might not have happened. Because when Piquet heard what was going on, he called Alacy an idiot. Piquet's advice to Alacy was go to Ferrari and tell them to make a proposition and show it to Frank. If Frank doesn't sign you immediately, go to Ferrari. Sam... We were just talking there that Lacey needed someone giving him good advice. Was this good advice from PK?
4: um nelson pk's professional advice consultancy limited mm. um i'm not sure about that one it's one hell of an unconventional mentor to have isn't it um i mean to be fair oh, look, to, i mean
3: he's always good at getting money out of people
4: well i'm just happy with that don't steal my thunder v just because you're an uber fan of nelson <laughs> actually as, as i way i've got a you know i i think pk was was fantastic in in period um he was pretty shrewd in his own career management wasn't he? he he got into that williams or he got into williams at just the right time got a title and a bunch of grand prix wins out of it you know when he knew how to get the deals done he'd been around the block he'd been in f1 a decade by this stage had three championships um an ocean of money um so actually mate you know although i poked some um a bit of fun at the start there pk you could have done a lot worse than get some at business advice from PK and he was exactly the kind of driver that, that would tell it as it is and, and did do. Um but what you have to appreciate is just how unprepared a was at this stage of his career. Evita B mentioned quite rightly Eddie John's advice was, was largely gone certainly on a formal basis by this stage because Andy was busy building his own F1 dreams of course during that summer. So John's brother, uh, Jose Alesi was managing his affairs at this stage. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if that's the same he probably had a different lawyer or maybe Jose Alesi was, was in the legal business I don't know but that, that was going to be a really tough ask at an early stage of of a career and somebody who was... Um, attracting so much interest so he must have felt like a real rabbit in the headlights that summer because he didn't have this protection around him I think in, in in typical PK fashion it probably was the right advice for Lacey just because it didn't because Lacy didn't have the stature or knowledge of how to play the game with the power of hindsight which we try not to get involved in too much but inevitably you have to sometimes he should have stuck with the Williams option in my opinion but That would have been a massive gamble, as it played out, and had the the Mansell pantomime just was just starting up, wasn't it, at the British Grand Prix, and all the pseudo drama that that entailed. So it got massively complicated. And the other thing we've not discussed is the conservatism of Williams, and particularly Frank Williams, in keeping drivers like Ricardo Patrese, who by that stage was not over the hill because he had a very good nineteen ninety one but certainly wasn't going to be the future of a top team. And, and as hindsight, going back to the hindsight thing, as, as is known, um, if Alacy would have been at Williams in 91, 92, 93, he would certainly have won a bunch of Grand Prix if not won the 93 title, you'd have to say. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it was a, a rabbit in headlights situation. There was a lot of panic on Alacy's side. And, and I just think he got lost. He got totally lost and i you know i think that's well known that it it rubbed off on some average performances after after that monaco weekend
2: So as Sam mentioned there, the British Grand Prix is where this all really kicked off. Alacy confronted Frank Williams, begging him to commit to the deal they'd agreed and to make it official in public. Williams said he didn't need to because they already had a contract together. But Alacy reminded him it had now been downgraded to just an option and he wanted the deal to be announced because otherwise he was going to pursue other options. Williams knew this was about Ferrari and Alacy said Frank went mad that Alacy was talking to other teams. Alacy said on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast that he got upset with Frank and said bad words to him before storming out. Andy, by this point, you know, the the French Grand Prix deadline has lapsed. We know we're into the, the weird option territory now. Is Alacy just being messed around by Williams here?
3: I'm getting a sense of deja vu here because I was listening to the Damon Hill um, episode one of this new series uh yesterday and obviously the key point in all of that is contract options with friends and, and lawyers getting involved and frank not necessarily being completely open with everyone and it, it really does feel like that's exactly what's happening here and sam alluded to it, it was it's it's one of those classic williams blind spots for all the brilliance in the engineering side of things and the development uh you know technically in the car they had this amazing habit of messing drivers around and trying to control the market keeping all of their options open which of course is understandable right you always want to be in the strongest possible position but it it, it's not really the reality of how things work you can't have all the things that you want it's a it's cake and eat it territory right you can't just keep stringing a lady out forever and then if you don't get mansell oh we'll bring him in you know it's like you know sticking with a girlfriend you're not particularly happy with because you've seen somebody else you fancy and then it turns out she doesn't like you meanwhile the other girl's like well you're being a complete asshole to me i'm off right all of a sudden you've got you've got terrible options right at least either deal with what you've got or go for what you want rather than just trying to end up with nothing
2: What a brilliant analogy. Um, On the Friday night at Silverstone, uh, Alessi met with Fiorio to discuss a move to Ferrari. On F1's uh, Beyond the Grid podcast, he said he told Ferrari, if you give me a three year contract, plus you take care of my buyout to Williams and Tyrrell, I'll sign with you. So he wasn't asking for much. Ferrari agreed, though, and Alacy took written proof to Williams the next day, telling Frank that either he signed Alacy there and then, or Alacy was signing for Ferrari. John said Frank talked about his option, and in Alacy's words, blah blah blah. So Alacy walked out of the Williams motorhome and signed for Ferrari. This saga was detailed very well in a book called Red Missiles in the mid 1990s, with input from Ken Tyrrell, Eddie Jordan, and Alacy's brother Jose, uh, who, as we mentioned, helped manage his career. In that book, Jose Alesi said the Williams deal carried performance clauses that would have been hard for Jean to live with. And it sa- uh, he said that Williams had the right to replace Alacy at any time if he so desired. Alacy got some help putting his Ferrari deal together as he showed it to Piquet, who, surprise, surprise, said the money was too low. So Piquet added a million dollars on, demanded a Ferrari F40 on Alacy's behalf and made sure it was a firm three year contract with no options prompting Ferrari president Piero Fissaro to remark that Alessi was really prepared for a young driver. Sam, faced with Williams' reluctance to commit, do you think Alessi did the right thing here by storming off to Ferrari because they were more keen to sign him?
4: And they were more competitive at that stage in 1990. They were a more competitive proposition. And you have to caveat everything with the emotional reaction too. As the, as the Sicilian parts of his DNA would have would have been buzzing around, and you know any interest from the uh, Scuderia would would have been um, very flattering. So there's the emotional part of it too. So taking all that into account, he, was he doing the right thing? I, I think I think he probably was because Williams was just so abject in trying to put its pieces together for '91 and and this is without even us talking about the whole Mansell um, scenario that played out that summer too, but if a if, if Lacey would have stopped and looked at what was happening with Williams in a bigger picture, you know, there they, they were a couple of years now into the Renault partnership. They were winning a few Grand Prix with Bootson and Patrese, a, a perfectly capable duo, but not a top-line duo. Adrian Newey had started work in July at um, did cot as it was then then actually long-term Williams made a lot more sense from a long-term perspective but only with the knowledge that you would have had with what's going on conversely at Ferrari because Ferrari was descending into a complete mess you know Cesare Fiorio was only had a few more months left in his position there was this bizarre committee of Ferrari Running Ferrari at that stage, De Montezemlo hadn't come back. Todd was a few years down the down the road. It was a rudderless ship, and perhaps if Alas had have had somebody full time looking after him, then he would have realised that and 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 done what it would have done whatever it took to to be a Williams driver in ninety one. So he was still in a reasonably strong position. He still had uh, what he considered at the time a top line Formula One team after him. Remember. The the average age of drivers in that, that period is, is something else to take into consideration. You know, most of them, PK Mansell props, were in their mid thirties. Um, you know, Senna was the youngest of that bunch, he'd just turned thirty in nineteen ninety. Even the next strata of drivers at that stage, Nanini Berger, were in their early thirties. Alacy was just a completely fresh proposition that teams could mould or hope to mould into the next star of the the the, the sort of early to mid nineties, um, and until Schumacher came along, Elacy was was that person. You know, he was that guy. So it was just unfortunate that he tied himself in knots and couldn't play it a lot cooler and see things. What was going on? You know, what what was the bigger picture? It all seemed very reactionary, and um, and I think that was the the ultimate failing. Had he or a representative known about all these traits, then he could have played things a lot differently, I feel, and it would have been a lot better for his career.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt actually on Ferrari versus Williams. Ferrari looked great in the summer of 1990. Williams, as you say, it wasn't quite clear yet if the Renault thing was going to gonna come good. And even if he knew they'd signed Adrian Newey, at that point, Adrian Newey was a guy who had built a really good car in 1988 and since then had... had pretty much failed to sort out a troubled Leighton house car for 18 months and I don't think anyone should have known that he was about to become a legendary F1 designer who is still involved in world championship winning cars today so I'll, I'll let a have that but so why let's try and get into why did Frank Williams string a along while he had signed a up since February as Frank said publicly He'd been talking with Nigel Mansell through the first half of the year. Mansell said in his mid-1990s autobiography that he and Williams had agreed the bones of a deal for 1991 that summer. But just before this Silverstone weekend, Frank said he couldn't offer Mansell a drive because, in Frank's words, Senna's coming to us. And as you might remember, that was what Cesare Fiorio had told Lacy was going on. At the previous race in France. However, Senna ultimately used that Williams offer to get a better deal at McLaren, and Williams then went back to Mansell at the time when its option on Alacy was still technically active. Jose Alacy said in the Red Missiles book, we knew that Frank had signed Ricardo Patrese, that he'd proposed a contract to Senna, and he was discussing with Nigel Mansell. If Jean had stayed with them, he would have been relegated to a test driver. Andy, let's look at that then. Does the fact that Williams went after Senna and Mansell, despite having signed a contract with Alesi, mean that Alesi was just the backup to, to kind of pick up on your earlier analogy?
3: Well, we know how much uh, Frank had coveted Senna, you know, right from that first time when he tested with them in 83. Um, and clearly there'd been a very strong bond uh, with Mansell through the, the time they were together although you could never be sure from one race to another whether he was going to announce his retirement in a fit of peak or not um, so you have to conclude that Alacy was always a fullback nice to have option you know the the fast new kid on the block that regardless of how many um, bits PK was able to add on was still going to be considerably cheaper than whatever um, Mansell or Senna were uh, asking for so it does make sense for them to cover to cover their bases if both of those have fallen through. Well, we've got a perfectly good guy here. He's almost certainly as quick, if not quicker, than um, Patrese, uh, and potentially somebody you can build a team around um, for the future. There was, as Sam said, they. It's not something that they'd really been known for not really since you know uh, Rosberg uh, came there and that was only really by default uh, they've been uh chancing their arm with young drivers um so it sort of makes sense for them uh very much on a business level um but on a human and emotional level it's not a particularly nice way to deal with people um but then when has life and business ever been fair
2: Yeah, I wonder if there was an element of talent farming going on here. Kind of get get the guy on the contract and if you don't need him, someone else, as happened, has then got to pay you to get their hands on him. But in that uh, Red Missiles book, both Ken Tyrrell and Eddie Jordan say it was a mistake to go to Ferrari. Ken called it a huge error, not because of Williams's success in the years that followed, but because of wasn't ready to drive for Ferrari. Tyrell felt that uh, Alacy didn't improve as a driver during his first two years there because he was too inexperienced. Eddie Jordan said he told Alacy he wasn't ready to go there and Eddie admitted to being furious when he found out Alacy had sorted himself a deal with Ferrari because Jordan felt it was too early. But both of these mentors accepted that Ferrari was a childhood dream of Alessi's and there was nothing they could do to stop him. Let's look at that. Theory about it being too early, Sam. Do you think that was the case? You know, as you described, Ferrari was an absolute cauldron in this era. Was that too much for a driver so inexperienced?
4: Probably, yes. Although there's also the sense he needed to hone what he had to. You know, this was a, as I alluded before, this was a bright red-hot, raw and innate skill that he had, and and this fighting instinct. I don't think anyone's disputed that in a LA. lacy. So it was just applying that and executing races which he always struggled with throughout his whole career. Um, he always struggled, hence winning but one Grand Prix. But it's easy to underestimate again the buzz that was around Alacy in nineteen ninety. It genuinely had the air of for me anyway, it had the bit of an air of the the whole Senna thing in eighty four about it. And perhaps Maybe the fervor was a bit too much, and maybe we're as guilty as others for for ramping it up but i I'm just telling you what it felt like as a fan at that time, and I think that transposed to elements of the paddock, thinking that ay was the you know the next big multi champion in the waiting um I also think that he had what he needed to be ready in some respects because he 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 had a mentor in Prost. And when he went to Ferrari in 91, I think if it hadn't been for that debacle at Ferrari, which descended into um, civil war and and, uh, just a a mess of a team, and they were effectively midfield runners for large parts of 91, it was always going to be hard for a young driver to try and patch that up and, and become the de facto leader in the team once Prost had checked out, which was pretty much... You know, four or five races from the end of that season, anyway, wasn't it? Um The argument for 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 not being ready, as as Eddie John suggests, I think was only partially, only has partial validity because of Jean's just his own nature as a, as a driver. He wasn't an uber analytical driver. He had natural feel. He acted on instinct. And, and when things went wrong, like at Jerez in nineteen ninety, and he dumped it off. People immediately assume that he just needed more time, but I think there's a case for stating that drivers of of that era, in particular, needed more Grand Prix under their belt because there was just so much more. There was just so much more scope for improving cars and getting cars consistently into the points. Senna and Schumacher were probably the only exceptions in terms of winning races in their in their second seasons around that time. And, and Alacy, I think even if he'd have gone to Williams in ninety one with Patrese, uh, you know, I think there's a case for saying that potentially Patrese could have ended up with more points than him and, and more scope for for winning Grand Prix that year.
2: We've talked a lot then about the two teams trying to sign Lacey, but what about the one he left? In the Red Missiles book, Ken Tyrrell said he wasn't happy Lacey was leaving, despite Tyrrell holding this option on him for 91 and 92. Ken said, once more, I gave a kid a chance and he dropped me like a brick when it suited him. Ken said he didn't pursue the matter legally with a Lacey or Ferrari, adding, experience has taught me that it's useless to try to keep a driver who wants to go. Before we discuss that, let's hear from Nigel Beresford one last time, as he can give us the perspective from those working directly with a Lacey in the team and how they felt when he got his move.
1: We were very unfashionable. And, and all of a sudden, yeah, there was this huge amount of attention. Um, but the, the backstory wasn't just the fact that Lacey, um was clearly being courted strongly. Um, and it, it was a distraction to him. And as I say, in the background, there was this slow chipping away at the infrastructure as well. Um, Ferrari started going after Jean-Claude. Um, Jean Villadel Pratt, huge part of of modernising the the operations of the team and 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 making it look slicker and smarter. He was he was being courted by Benetton, and, so, and obviously the big the big banner um, departure was was Jean, and he was yeah he was certainly distracted. He, I mean, we weren't churlish when he told us that he was going to Ferrari he was you know we were as excited for him because we loved him so much that and he was getting you know what he wanted more than anything else which was a Ferrari drive you know a French Sicilian kid and he was more he was more Sicilian than French really Um, getting his dream come true you know it'd be be pretty mean not to to want the best for him but he he was he certainly was a bit moodier, and there was a famous kind of press conference, or which was more like a, a gathering around a table at the motorhome with Ken and Jean, you know, to try and uh, clear up what was going on. Um, but it, it was in, it was inevitable, and at the time, it was definitely, you know, very sad that we were losing Jean. But it's you know, you in the end if somebody doesn't want to work for you in in racing or or whatever you you know it's no point in keeping them around
2: andy let's pick up on ken tyrrell's point if we can about being dropped like a brick by a lacy do you sympathize with ken over that
3: um yes and no and i can see why he might feel he was owed some loyalty, you know, gave the guy a chance, gave him a big break. Uh, and, but, you know, a reigning Formula 3000 champion, it's likely somebody was going to do that. It's not as if that was the only route he was ever going to have into F1. Um, but I think uh, Alessi didn't owe them anything, right? He dragged them out the mire. Um, we mentioned at the top, it was uh, 89 was their best finish since 79. You know, okay, they won a couple of races in the the dregs of the dfv era with Alberto, but they'd been on a downward steep downward trajectory for a while um and the 88 car was absolute dog in fact i've driven that car i drove uh that 88 Tyrrell around mallory park on one of those driving days not that i'm any judge of uh formula one cars or anything to me it was pretty amazingly fast but in, in the did you look
2: at it and go what you need to do is raise the nose
3: <laughs> so what and, and have a massive spacer at the back i was like seven centimeters after the gearbox or something that they put <laughs> um anyway i think it was a julian bailey cut. either way like, they were in the doldrums they were going nowhere right the early part of 89 albreto would had come in and had a slightly help them um pick up the performances but it was only really when a lacey was in that car that they were then fighting at the front they become a name again and on the back of that you know they did the honda deal they had the big brown sponsorship um in 91 and they became a, a, a much uh, stronger team as a result but history shows it didn't take them long to revert to the the mean of where they were before um i mean if he'd stayed around for 91 he probably would have done a little bit better than the moderner did um maybe in Monaco aside, but I don't, um, they were going backwards. I don't, they, they would really struggle to have uh, kept, kept the level they they were at. So I, I can see why Ken was upset, but I don't think Alacy um, owed them anything.
2: At the very next race, after all that nonsense at Silverstone, where everything was signed, but nothing was announced, the media speculation got too much for Lacy. He called a media gathering at Hockenheim where he sat with Ken Tyrrell and pleaded with the media to stop reporting on the rumours about his future. Alacy told the media, I'm going through a very difficult period right now. I'm not used to this kind of thing. I'm having trouble concentrating on my driving, and that's why I've gathered you together to tell you that I haven't decided anything concerning my future. I'd like that you let me finish this season in peace with Tyrrell before we start discussing next year. Alacy said that Tyrrell was helping him deal with the stresses of sorting his future, which, as we know, was already sorted because he'd signed for Ferrari by now. And uh, what I imagine was a rather bemused Ken then told the media that Alacy had asked him not to exercise his option for 1991. Ken said he didn't know where Alacy was going and that he hadn't felt the need to talk to him about it, because as far as I'm concerned, I already had a contract with him. This press conference, if we can call it that, um, went down... Terribly with the media, who pointed out it was a Lacey signing contracts left, right and centre. So it wasn't really the media's reporting of that that was the cause of all the problems here. Sam, I'm sure there are plenty of times uh, you've been told to stop writing about stuff that you find out. Uh, was this plea from a Lacey to the media a bit misguided? I think it
4: was naive more than misguided. Uh, again, another indication that a Lacey was a bit green uh, when it came to how... How the wider world worked, um, he was obviously ex- prodigiously talented at driving the cars, but outside of the cockpit he still had a lot of um, a lot of growing up to do they weren't i mean the media weren't going to help a novice firebrand driver out whatever na- nationality they were or or standing in the sport and, and and neither should they from a journalistic point of view, this was a great story, and I think I can speak for most of us here and and potentially listening when you you, you aren't going to give much slack if any at all to a driver who's got themselves in this position you can sympathize but professionally um through their own mismanagement they've got themselves in this position so you know you're under no obligation to to help them out particularly you know this wasn't f3 or f3000 anymore this was this was the grown-up stuff now and a and lacy realized that in a pretty brutal fashion and i think it was dawning on him by then that um that at this stage of his career he needed to you know, he needed to be a bit more savvy on what was going on. I suspect that Ken Tyrrell might have been behind some of this plea somewhat in an effort to protect Alacy in case he ended up shooting himself in both feet the Williams foot and the Ferrari foot and staying on at Tyrrell. Um but I think even Ken actually, having been round the block, probably knew that he was he was gonna lose his his star driver. I think for for all Ken's wiliness, um, he was still a pure he still had this pure and honest view of of the world. Um and perhaps he thought it would just die down and, and John would actually honour his contract. I don't know. But uh, it was all I I've seen um I haven't seen a film of this press conference, but I've seen plenty of uh, still pictures. There's a few in I think Autocourse and Murray Walker's annual, and it just looks utterly chaotic. I mean, it was it just looked a bit embarrassing and a, a bit unseemly. But that's that's what it was at that stage. It was a, a bit of a circus.
2: Not even just looking at it as a journalist. I, the reason I struggled to sympathise is that he had signed all these contracts. By now, in his mind, his future was resolved. None of it was public. It wasn't like he was a a free agent who hadn't made his mind up yet. And everyone was going crazy with the coverage as they, as they would, and as they would be entitled to, but you know, a was withholding some of the truth in his plea, you know, and he's saying, I haven't decided anything concerning my future. It's like, well, you have, you've decided to bin Williams off and sign for Ferrari. So we can't be too sympathetic, but this story got even more bizarre in the middle of September. So we still have nothing announced by now because rumours then broke that Alessandro Nannini had signed to race for Ferrari in 1991. Just a week after that, Alessi's move to Ferrari became official, and Tyrrell announced that he was being released despite the team having a binding contract. A week later, Nannini explained his side of this story. He said he'd agreed a two-year contract with Ferrari, but when he went to Maranello to sign it, it had become a one-year deal with two more years as options. Nannini refused to sign that and was promised it would be adjusted, but when he flew out to Switzerland to sign it again, it hadn't been changed, so he refused again. Speculation in the press at the time suggested that the Nannini story was a ploy by Ferrari to get Frank Williams to release Alessi. Frank did that in the end. He got money and an ex-Mansell Ferrari race car in the process. And for many years, that was the only non-Williams to be on display in the Williams Museum, which I just love. But Andy, if Ferrari had got Nannini instead of Alessi, and before uh, anyone, anyone listening gets wires and says, well, Nannini's F1 career was about to end due to his helicopter accident, let's assume that doesn't happen and Nannini does race on into 1991. How do you think Nannini Ferrari could have worked out?
3: Yeah, this is an excellent question. I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about this. Um, I think at the point where he was in his career then, Nannini would have been quite a good fit for Ferrari. And He was very Italian with his love of espressos and cigarettes and all of that. But from what I understand, he was actually quite laid back, wasn't too political, didn't really get involved in any of those sort of, shenanigans and as sam alluded to a few times you know the atmosphere in ferrari at that time was literally all over the place so if you could allow that to sort of wash over you you would have been in a in a very good position um and he and he was definitely quick you know in in 90 he'd had some really strong races i think hockenheim the yeah he he drove really well there and he was seemingly you know coming to that sort of apex of his of his talent and was probably just about deserving of a, of a move into a, a big team if we if we don't you know look a little bit down the line of where Benetton were going to be um so yeah I think he would have been a good fit there I, I think in actual fact he might have done a little bit better in 91 than Alacy ultimately did I think his knowledge of uh the Goodyear tyres I think his experience like Sam said you know Alessi made a few rookie errors uh, sophomore errors whatever whatever the uh the experience whatever the phrase should be due to his lack of experience well that's what we thought at the time it was just a lacy being being a lacy um that <laughs> that nanini wouldn't have made right he wasn't somebody who chucked off the road very much or whatever and i think him and prost would have been a decent lineup there until it all imploded at least um what he wouldn't have had any ability to control was the total dogs of cars that ferrari would produce in 92 into a, a lesser extent 93 i don't think you could have done anything with those and in fact Alessio was probably the absolutely perfect person to deal with those we see how um you know he buried capelli in in 92 just by grabbing it by the scruff of the neck and throwing it around and sort of apropos of nothing um that portugal 93 race where lacy manages somehow to get that car into the lead at the first corner it's my absolute favorite lacy ferrari moment um but i don't think um nanini would ever have been loved by ferrari and the and the tofosi in the same way that lacy was um but i think yeah, it could have been a, an interesting sign and it was a real shame that we never really got to see uh what he did and 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 you know what he was able to go on and achieve as a touring car and sports car driver, despite his uh, physical limitations, show just how talented a, a racing driver he really was.
2: Agreed. Uh, Lacey described the news of his Ferrari deal as one of the best moments of his career, and he said he could finally get back to concentrating on his driving Speaking about the off-track pressure at the end of the year in an interview of Autosport, he said that as the year went on, things got worse and worse, and every time he arrived at a race, there was pressure all the time. Reflecting on this in 2017, he called 1990 a terrible season because every race, I was in Frank's motorhome, Ferrari's motorhome, it was not nice. I know, Sam, that when we talked about the Hockenheim press conference, we weren't very sympathetic, but was this all too much for an F1 newcomer to be expected to deal with. Well, it it shouldn't have been really.
4: He'd been a professional driver now for four years um, and he'd gone up the the single-seater ladder. He'd been part of the Marlborough um, scheme, a young driver scheme, along with uh, others like Mika Hakkinen and and Alan McNish. Um, He just didn't have that um, system, that that sort of that strength around him it was just he was had a very idealistic vision of being a racing driver which i'm not criticizing because it's why I, why i loved him and um, i'm sure many others did but at that stage even though it wasn't the uber professional F1 as we know today it was still it was still commercially orientated so you had to have your your ducks in a row i think the the basic requirement for most professional drivers at that time should have been a strong management representation and as i've mentioned the Lacey just didn't didn't have that um, but then again, you know, remember that Senna got himself into a bit of a pickle, didn't he, at Tolman in, in uh, 84 when he, he was effectively suspended from the Italian Grand Prix at Monza that year because of uh, signing the Lotus deal. So it just so happened that Alacy, I think, took it all to a, just a new level in 1990 and it just became, as we've discussed, this circus. Uh, there's, there's some inevitability that a new and young driver will get into these types of situations. And Schumacher did, didn't he, in um, in Monza um, after his debut at Spa. Uh, but at least he had the experienced hand of, or the hands of Vili Weber and Tom Walkinshaw around him to guide him. And Alacy just didn't have that. So I think if there's any sympathy or any sort of contextualisation, then it should be just that Alacy was just too focused on his natural talent on the track and, and didn't have the, the team around him off it.
2: While Alessi could get back to focusing on his driving in the final races of the year, the season didn't exactly end with a flourish. He crashed out at the start of the Spanish Grand Prix, as we mentioned. That was a clash with Gerhard Berger and Ricardo Patrese after Alessi had qualified fourth. He missed the Japanese Grand Prix with a neck injury after a massive crash on the Friday. And he described his eighth-placed finish in the season finale in Australia, which back then, of course, didn't get you any points, as the hardest race of his career, partly because he had the flu. It's all amounted to Alessi finishing ninth in the championship as he had in 1989 when he'd only contested roughly half the season. He scored five more points this time with a tally of 13, but he only finished in the points three times and never again after that podium at round four in Monaco. Tyrrell, meanwhile, despite the groundbreaking car design, scored exactly the same number of points as they had in 89, just 16. And they were miles off breaking into the top four teams, as they'd hoped to at the start of the year. So, Andy, looking at the year overall, did those two peaks in Phoenix and Monaco mask what was actually quite a disappointing season for a and for Tyrrell?
3: Yeah, the highs were definitely high. And I think when you look at this Next to those expectations, like you say, they're aiming for top four in the a, in a championship and, you know, really seeking a massive renaissance. It, it does look really underwhelming. But I think that that does an injustice to actually what had happened. You know, with, uh, with the exception of Phoenix, he was never outqualified by another Pirelli uh, runner. And as Sam said, near Monaco, 1.4 seconds quicker than that. In the races that he finished... Uh, he was never beaten by another um, Pirelli-Shod car, although obviously he's going up against Bernardi's Brabham's and Dolores. So make of that what you will, but you can only beat what you're up against. Um, so I think it's almost impossible to see this season out of the context of what the tyres were doing at the time. You know, they were clearly unaffected by the demands of street tracks where traditionally softer tyres are the ones that you want. But anywhere where longevity uh, and you know proper race worthiness wearing was required they were they were left wanting uh, you know so you would it always well i think there are two or three exceptions you qualify in the top 10 normally somewhere between fourth and seventh which you know i'd say that's pretty good going in a in a car that's uh ultimately finishing wherever it does in the championship um he makes a few mistakes, right? He bins it off in Monza after making those cracking starts that we were talking about. Um, he has that pointless crash with Martini and Hungary. You alluded to the start in... He actually makes a poor start in the ref, and that's part of the problem. He swerves to try and um, go around Berger and clips Patrese's front. wing. you see Patrese go up in the air, and then he gets a punch and, and goes off. But these... I think they're the classic hallmarks of somebody dragging more performance out of the car than is actually there. When your teammate, you can't even see on that part of the green, when the grid's scrolling, there's a few seconds till he pops up. You know, you're clearly doing something right, um, but the results aren't there. It's difficult to put all of that at the door, or unfair to put all of that at the door of the performance of the driver and actually the performance of the car as well, just from those opening laps at Monza, where that car legitimately is quicker in a straight line than a ferrari monza despite there being a horsepower deficit of 60 70 horsepower it's huge between the v12 and uh and the dfr right they were doing something right with that car but there's another component there that's not working and i think that's that was the tire so in terms of pure results incredibly disappointing but i think if you looked beyond that you know there were reasons to think that a Lacey was And I I would say probably that was the highest level he ever performed that in F1, really. And it was just a massive, unfortunately, a massive disappointment from then on. (laughs) Um, Well, and... How much of that was a car? How much of that was the overall package? How much was that way when he bonded with the tyres? All of these things are impossible to know, but we ne- never saw Lacey in that same way. You just watch him monster in those curbs in Monza. There's a bit where he takes about four tenths of a second out of the two McLarens just through the first chicane. He just hammers it through. They're so much more committed than they are. It's like he's on burger's tail by the time he comes out of it. It's like he was he was like four or five tenths away when they were coming down the main straight but yeah unfortunately we never saw that again except for maybe a few times in the way Donington in a DTM or, or something like that but I really wanted to believe right it was like the X-Files I wanted to believe that Lacey was the next superstar in waiting and I think the evidence was there in 90 but it was a fleeting glimpse and unfortunately we never saw that again.
4: I looked at the uh, autocourse uh, ahead of doing this as I'm sure you did as well Glenn and they do their top 10 which is caveated by um, it all being assembled due to the talent and skill that the driver had shown during that season and I don't know I don't know who it's probably Alan Henry or um, or Morris Hamilton I think did it in those days guess where they put a lacy for that season in the top 10 V to B. uh seventh Glenn third do you know
2: no I don't know I'm saying third
4: well, I'm I'm raising this because it's astonishing. They put him ninth. Oh, which I just thought was <laughs> unbelievable. Nanini, I think Boots and Burger are ahead of him, and I just think <laughs> it's just amazing. Hope that
3: size audible,
4: <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> I, was, I was, I had to do a double check, double take. I just couldn't believe that they put Jean Alacy ninth in that for that season.
3: Honestly, ninety burgers lucky to have made it into the top ten. <laughs>
2: Wow. Uh, yeah. That, that. Well, I guess we could say now looking back, they saw what we all couldn't. Maybe uh, a couple of our uh, responses on Twitter. There were other people who said 1990 was his his best ever season as well. And it was all downhill from there. So, yeah, maybe maybe the decline had started in the second half of the year. Uh, we'll leave it there on on that glum note for Alacy's memorable 1990 season. I think it's safe to say that he didn't become the defining driver of the decade, as as was discussed at the beginning. But he certainly made his mark on the years that followed, and it's always fun when an Alacy tale comes up from any of the years that he was on the grid when we do these. Thanks to Sam and to Andy for helping us pick our way through everything that went on during that season on and off track. Next time, we're jumping forward to the end of the 1990s and the penultimate race of 1999 in Malaysia, where Michael Schumacher made his comeback from a broken leg to hand victory to teammate Eddie Irvine, only for it to be taken away for a technical infringement for about six days.
1: The Athletic.